Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zora. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Good morning and welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. We are coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19 meter band to Far West Africa. And I am Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa. Tabisoluhoko and Tami Kuza. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, the border dispute continues between Tanzania and Malawi, and food security expected to deteriorate in Somalia. In economics, Egypt raises taxes on cigarettes and alcohol, and in sports news, FIFA suspends Nigeria from all football activities. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. Good morning. Central African Republic's President Catherine Samba Panza has accused militia of barbaric and criminal acts after 26 civilians seeking shelter at a church were killed this week. Eleven women were among the 26 killed in Monday's attack on civilians sheltered at a church in the central region of Bambare. About 35 people were also injured. Seleka rebels and Christian vigilante groups have been accused of atrocities against civilians during the recent unrest with tit-for-tat violence over the last year, claiming thousands of lives and displacing about a quarter of the population. Somali President Hassan Sheikh Mahmoud has appointed a new security minister following a deadly attack against the presidential palace. He dismissed his police and intelligence chiefs after the attack. Khalif Ahmed Erich, a former intelligence chief, has been named as the new national security minister. Al-Shabaab fighters launched a major bomb and armed assault against the presidential palace late on Tuesday and managed to penetrate the heavily fortified complex. Several people were killed during the raid. Dutch troops have joined a United Nations peacekeeping mission in Mali to meet a growing security threat from the region to the Netherlands. The Netherlands has deployed some 450 special forces troops, intelligence operatives and attack helicopters to a UN force rolling out across northern Mali. About 8,000 of the 12,000-strong UN force has been deployed and so far the main contributors are African nations. UN peacekeepers operate separately from French troops focusing on counter-terrorism missions in Mali. Strict new South African immigration laws have sparked confusion and panic among foreign residents, forcing 250,000 Zimbabweans to decide whether to to return home. New rules enforced shortly after the country's May election caught scores of expatriate workers off guard. 
South Africa has promised to make a decision on the status of the Zimbabweans with immigration chief Apleni Mkuseni saying they should wait patiently and with no panic. But the new South African Home Affairs Minister Malusi Gigaba signaled a less sympathetic stance. South Africa's public protector Tulima Donsela says she awaits a response from the Communications Minister and the South African Broadcasting Corporation's board regarding the appointment, the decision to appoint Claudi Mutuneng as the Public Broadcaster's Chief Operations Officer, despite her report citing his original appointment as irregular. Madonsela had expressed concern about Mutuneng's lack of qualifications as well as numerous salary increases granted to him. However, the SBC says the appointment will assist in moving the public broadcaster forward. Madonsela says she would like to hear from the communications minister and the SBC board. Don't make anything of it at this stage because I still need to ask the minister to come and explain herself and the SABC board to come and explain itself regarding why this step has been brought forward whilst I'm still waiting for the action plan that, I, that was promised to me by the SABC board. SBC spokesperson Keza Khanyaho says the public broadcaster's requirement to reply to the public protector's report is unrelated to Mutsuneng's permanent appointment. Khanyaho says Madonsela's report stipulates only that the COO position had to be filled, not who should fill it. The SBC has until August 17th to reply to Madonsela's report that found Mutsuneng's appointment had been irregular. That's the news headlines at 8.30 Central African Time. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you, and it is exactly 8.06 Central African time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on this day, Thursday, July the 10th, the 191st day of the year 2014, with exactly 174 days left in the year. Our top story, the border dispute between Malawi and Tanzania is far from over. This after Malawi's new president, Peter Mutarika, announced that the Lake Malawi border issue is non-negotiable. Mutarika says Africa's third largest lake entirely belongs to Malawi. Although the president has maintained his stand, which is contrary to that of her predece- of his predecessor, Joyce Banda, most people seem to be tongue-tied over the firm stand by Mutarika. George Mango has more from Blantyre. The message to Dodoma from Lilongwe is that Malawi would only be going to meet Tanzanians to understand how the Joyce Banda administration approached the lake border Rango matter. According to State House Press Secretary Frederick Ndala, the policy stance will be maintained, which is that the border issue is not negotiable. Mutarika recently highlighted the significance of improving relations with neighboring countries such as Mozambique, Tanzania and Zambia so as to boost SARC regional integration. Despite what Mutarika has said, 
Tanzania through its ambassador to Malawi Patrick Terry told the local media that Dodoma has not received any new policy position from Lilongwe meaning that negotiations remain the path to agreement Sarah said what is encouraging is that Malawi is willing to carry on with the negotiations, adding that it is also pleasing that Mutarika is not hostile to his neighboring countries going by his inauguration speech and the state of the national address in parliament. However, Malawians seem to be divided on the recent outbursts by the president. While some share his notion on the matter, others feel like Malawi border issue needs dialogue between the two countries. My name is Karin Kola. About Lake Malawi, it's non-negotiable. Because one can say, these things belong to me unless you have proof. As we know, Lake Malawi, at first it was Lake Nyasa, and it changes from Lake Nyasa to Lake Malawi, meaning to say the borders were already given during that time. And in addition to that, I think at first the Tanzania government could have considered the documents where they send the agreements, they should have considered those documents or they should have reviewed, but I don't think it's negotiable. My name is Thomas Kachere, uh, right here in Blanta. For peace and tranquility, we need to sit down. It's already there that people are discussing. We need to negotiate on the table, otherwise we'll bring confusion amongst the two countries. Malawi and Tanzania have been there as brothers and sisters, we all know that. So coming up with this issue to do with Lake Malawi borders or uh, to say demarcations, I don't think we should draw much into confusions. Otherwise, the issue is already at uh, the SADC where people are trying to make sure that it's one resolved at once and for all. My name is Memole Matumula. This story is negotiable because it involves two people. So to come up with a, a reasonable answer, it has to be negotiable for unity and peace. In the standoff, Malawi asserts full ownership of the lake except the southeastern stretch in Mozambique where Tanzania is claiming the northeastern half of its shores. But for legal practitioner and politician Kamuzi Chwambo, there is need to trade carefully on the matter. At some point, political leaders, including myself, were invited by President Joyce Banda. Following reports that Tanzania has uh, redefined its borders and has come up with a new map which claims half of the lake following the median line, as is normally the case in customary international law. That in itself casts um, a totally different dimension on the dialogue process. That development throws into question the whole process of dialogue. It's right and proper, and it's also within the rights of Malawi, the Malawi government, to take an issue like this one to the ICJ, International Court of Justice. To some extent, Tanzania is using the 1982 UN Convention on Law of the Sea that stipulates that in cases where nations are separated by a water body, the boundary lies in the middle of the water source. Current remediators, headed by former Mozambican President Joachim Chisano, with former heads of state such as South Africa's Tabombeki and Botswana's Festus Muhai as members, are yet to provide the two countries with tangible measures which they have discussed so far with the respective countries. Malawi and Tanzania border dispute dates back to the 1960s when Malawi's founding president, the late Dr. Hastings Kamuzubanda, claimed that Lake Malawi and the whole of mayor in Tanzania were part of Malawi.
Kamuzu Banda was reportedly basing his claim on the July 1, 1980 Anglo-German agreement the former colonial powers signed to stipulate that the border between the two countries lies along the Tanzanian shore on the lake. George Muhango, Channel Africa, Blantyre. The United Nations Refugee Agency estimates that more than 40,000 South Sudan refugees have fled to Kenya since fighting broke out in the country in December last year. As the nation marks its third independence anniversary amid fighting hunger and a cholera outbreak, those in Kenya feel there is little to celebrate. Sarah Kimani went out to Nairobi, to Nairobi streets and spoke to those living and studying in the capital. Kenya holds a special place in many a South Sudanese hearts. It is here that after years of fighting, a peace agreement was signed. It is also here that for 20 years, thousands of them sheltered from a civil war in their nation. And so, since independence three years ago, they have gathered in churches and a small square in Nairobi to celebrate. On Wednesday, we stood along Kenyatta Avenue in the capital Nairobi, a street popular with South Sudan nationals living in Kenya. Here we meet 21-year-old Alich Makwach. My celebrations are inside because I'm here in Kenya. Uh, there's nowhere we can gather and celebrate. I'm a student. So it's, all my happiness and everything is, is just inside, but I'm happy. For the first time since the country's independence, nothing special was planned in Nairobi. Rightly so, says Makul Wall, also studying in Kenya. I don't think whether, what, what will the South Sudanese celebrate, what is so happy about them, or what the achievement, like the last uh, seven months, what will they tell the, the, the nation about, because I don't know what that is. Not, there's nothing to celebrate, actually. Three years ago, James K packed his bags from Kenya, ready to start a new life in his new nation. December last year, he was on the run, back to where he was as a refugee. As fighting between troops loyal to President Salvakil and former Deputy President Dr. Riek Machal threatened to tear the nation along ethnic lines. Many of us were not aware that it would have moved to the tribal lines. We thought it was a political issue, but we all saw people moving to hours to hours. And, uh, and that was an incident that I saw people coming to my house, knocking doors and also shooting guns around and killing neighbors, including my relative who was with me in the house. How many did you lose? How many? I lost five actually on the 16th of December. A war that has dragged on for seven months has left tens of thousands dead, more than a million people displaced and a country on the throes of a famine. The fruits of freedom no longer enjoyable. Quoth Bishop questioning South Sudan's leaders' willingness to turn over a new leaf. We come here because there's no education in South Sudan. We expect our leader to build a school, hospital, and everything that we can enjoy in our country. We have resources, but our people, our leaders, they didn't utilize these resources for us. Those who have not fled the country are living in fear. Some opting to take shelter in camps for displaced persons, including inside United Nations compounds. Joyce Deng was born in Kenya. She's currently studying economics and had hoped to finally return home. For us to recover, it will take about 10 years or more. So I don't know. It means nothing this day to me today. Some, like Luol Garang, still seeking the true meaning of independence. We don't even understand what we are fighting for. Yeah, because by then we are fighting for the freedom of the people of Sudan. 
Then we got independent. See, now South Sudan. We were thinking that if we got independent, we should be like other countries who are fish. You see, we are not mean for for war only. Yeah. You're tired of war? No, we don't want war. There seems to be no end in sight to that war. In neighboring Ethiopia, peace talks have faltered. South Sudan, the world's youngest nation, now at crossroads. In Nairobi, I am Sarah Kemani. The food security situation in Somalia is expected to deteriorate over the next six months, according to the UN Humanitarian Office, OCHA. The agency says the availability of food will decline due to a combination of late and erratic seasonal rains, rising food prices and ongoing insecurity. Currently, 2.9 million people are food insecure and 50,000 children under the age of five who are at risk of acute malnutrition require treatment. Patrick Maigua asked Edem Wosonu, who heads up the Ocha Somalia office about the situation in the country. Over the last six months, in fact, before in 2013, we started raising humanitarian alerts and alarms about the situation. And we've basically raised six early warning alerts on the fact that the situation and the humanitarian situation was deteriorating in Somalia. We're saying that we don't want famine conditions to come back before we start raising the concerns. Now, we experienced four main parallels to pre-famine conditions in Somalia. The first one is about low rains and the impact on the harvest. The second one is about lack of sustained access to populations and the lack of access to commercial transportation and commercial goods by the population. The third one is about funding and the low levels of funding we're seeing in Somalia was the same thing we saw in 2010. And the fourth one is about the fact that operating in a high-risk environment can sometimes cause problems. In 2014, based on the latest food security analysis unit findings and assessments, we are beginning to see that the number of food insecure people in Somalia, currently at 2.9 million, could go up. We need to continue to assist people because if we don't, the situation could get worse. You said there are about 2.9 million people who are food insecure right now. What numbers are you looking at, say, to the end of the year? What will be the situation? I cannot predict the numbers, but based on all the indications, the food insecurity and the lack of access to commercial transport, as well as the low harvest that we've recorded, as well as the low rains, we predict that this number could increase. Now, this number has increased. You may recall that during the famine, it was 4.5 million. We're not saying it will be 4.5 million, but we're at 2.9. 2.9 is bad as it is. Any increase would be very, very bad. Of this 2.9, 860,000 are in critical need of assistance, and they rely on daily assistance packages throughout the country. An additional 2 million requires support. When a situation like this begins to show up, most concern is for children. Are you seeing any increase in the level of malnutrition among children? At the moment, the levels are bad enough. 50,000 children are severely malnourished. As part of that, 203,000 are acutely malnourished and under five years old and require urgent treatment and nutrition support throughout the year. These numbers are unacceptable in any other context. Somehow, because of Somalia's existential humanitarian crisis, somehow these numbers do not bat an eyelid. The 50,000 children today who are severely malnourished who require assistance is bad enough. What we need is an injection of resources today 
our appeal is grossly underfunded. 27% underfunded halfway into the year. There's a gap of over $670 million that we require to sustain the response. We have issued what we call an appeal within the appeal. So of the remaining 670 gap, 70 million gap, we've asked for just 60 million of that, a tenth of that, to critically save lives. We're asking donors, we're asking member states to do more to support Somalis in need. And how is the security situation impacting on your ability to provide for families in Somalia? We have access across the country. There are some pockets where we don't have access. But where we have access, we've been able to do a lot. With the 212 million we've received, we've assisted a million people with food assistance, 97,000 children with treatment for malnourishment, an additional 400,000 have received some water interventions. So we have access. There are indeed pockets of insecurity. There are indeed pockets that have been encircled by armed groups that are preventing flow of commercial traffic. Somalia is a huge country, so we're able to assist people where they are. We've also been able to assist some 45,000 families to return IDPs, internally displaced people, to return from the northern parts of the country to the south where they can continue their livelihoods. What would you say would be the worst-case scenario should you not be able to raise enough funds to meet what you require to the end of the year? Two years ago, in 2012, the world came together and pledged Somalia never again will we allow famine to average this country. In 2014, I say we do not want the worst-case scenario to ever happen because the worst-case scenario was famine in 2011 and it killed 260,000 people. That was Edem Wosonu, head of the Ocha office in Somalia, talking to UN Radio's Patrick Maigua. A world that remains beset by so much human suffering, poverty and deprivation. It is in your hands to make of our world a better one for all. This year on Mandela Day, the 18th of July, join Channel Africa as we bring you a special outside broadcast from Yeovil Community School in Johannesburg, South Africa. From 1100 Central African time, we will have children from around Africa talking to us and telling us what they will be doing for 67 minutes and the principal will tell us about the history of the school. We will also bring you the sounds and atmosphere as people celebrate Mandela Day. So join us for a special Mandela Day experience. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. It is in your hands to make a difference. It's Mandela Day next week, Thursday, the 18th, the day which is Nelson Mandela's birthday, was declared by the UN General Assembly as Nelson Mandela International Day. The celebration of this International Day recognizes and gives credence to the former South Africa president's commitment to human rights, conflict resolution and reconciliation. Now our question to you this morning is, what are you going to do on Mandela Day to honor the world icon? 
Email us on info at channelafrica.org. Send us an SMS to plus 2782-332-5905 or get a hold of us on Twitter at Channel Africa 1. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. The UN Secretary-General has added his voice to calls for the Security Council to convene an urgent session over the violent escalation in the Gaza Strip. Ban Ki-moon has expressed his alarm over the new wave of violence that has engulfed not only Gaza, but southern Israel and the West Bank, including East Jerusalem. The murder of three Israeli teens and the subsequent reprisal murder of a Palestinian teen has placed the region on a war footing with hundreds of rockets fired into Israel and the Jewish state responding with air attacks targeting Hamas that have killed dozens. Show and Bryce Peace reports. Gaza on a knife edge according to the UN chief warning of a downward spiral which could quickly get beyond anyone's control. The risk of violence expanding further still is real. Gaza and the region as a whole, cannot afford any other full-blown war. Again, I firmly condemn the multiple rocket attacks launched from Gaza on Israel. Such attacks are unacceptable and must stop. I also urge the Prime Minister Netanyahu to exercise maximum restraint and to respect international obligations to protect the civilians. The UN boss spent Wednesday on the phone with regional leaders including the King of Saudi Arabia, the Emir of Qatar and the President of Egypt to use their influence to push the parties back to a ceasefire agreed to in November 2012. In his talks with both the Israeli Prime Minister and the Palestinian President, Ban Ki-moon called for justice not revenge and emphasized the need for a return to meaningful negotiations towards a two-state solution. I also encourage the government of Egypt to urgently open its crossing for humanitarian purposes to help alleviate uh, the suffering. I know emotions are running high, very high. I urge all sides to exercise maximum restraint. Calm must be restored as soon as possible. The lives of countless innocent civilians and the peace process itself are in the balance. The UN often walks a tightrope between the Israelis and Palestinians, careful to condemn both sides and to call for all parties to pull back from the brink. I shared with both Israeli and Palestinian leaders my condolences and condemnation of the recent attacks on innocent civilians. The killers must be brought to justice. I also encourage leaders on both sides to do their utmost to end all attacks including provocations and attacks by Israeli settlers. Extremism in all its forms is fueling the cycle of violence. He called this one of the most critical tests the region has faced in years. The Security Council is expected to take up the matter later Thursday. I'm Sherman Bryce in New York. 
Leader of South African Opposition Party, Akhang Ese, Dr. Mampele Rampele, has finally called it quits yesterday, bringing down a curtain on a year that was characterized by disagreements, rebellion and disquiet about her leadership style. The former academic, medical doctor and one-time managing director of the World Bank gave her love for grassroots politics of civil society as one of the reasons she decided to leave politics. Gossi looks at the highs and lows of Rampele's tenure at the helm of the party. We can build a country in which self-conscious, self-confident and proud South Africans can shape this future of a winning nation where every man, every woman can find the job that they want to do where every child gets high-quality education, where every government official can be trusted to serve you. Our power as citizens cannot be underestimated. For one year, Akhang South Africa leader Dr. Mampele Rampele mesmerized South Africans with a vision of the future of the country's politics, citizen control, education, and a corruption-free society where everyone would enjoy equal opportunities. With a background as an anti-apartheid activist, a medical doctor, a respected academic and a senior official of the World Bank, it was difficult not to notice Rampele. That was until her suicidal political flirt with her friend Helen Zille after she agreed to stand as the DA's presidential candidate in the May general elections. This led to a public fallout within Ahang and forced her to backtrack and apologize. The retraction also solicited harsh criticism from Zile. In order to serve the voters, this was a genuinely good faith attempt to realign politics and to bring opposition parties together. It doesn't help to have a whole lot of shattered, tiny, splinter parties all over the landscape of South Africa. During the course of the past week, I realised We could not in good conscience say that Mampila can be the president of South Africa. Despite the withdrawal from the DA's candidates list to parliament, the damage was already done and Ahang structures began to question Rampele's leadership style. Rampele's deputy Anristo Yamma goes as far as describing her as a burden and a poison to the party. Others like Donald Tonsi, who Rampele tried to expel from Ahang, Describe her leadership style as poor, lacking in people's skill, and sowing divisions between people. She has been running a party like a tech shop. You cannot have a situation where you, you are supposed to take decisions with members and have an individual sitting with friends somewhere in the Western Cape taking decisions without consulting the structure. That cannot, it is unacceptable. Democratic process dictates that you need to consult. Unless, unless we are in somewhere in a social club. Uh, in a social club, one can behave in that particular manner. But in a democratic political organization, we are not expecting this type of a behavior which has been demonstrated by Dr. Rampe. Some, such as Peter Maguela, say there are people in Ahang who can do better than Rampele and take the party forward. Currently, we, we have uh, fully-fledged provincial structures that is fully-fledged uh, uh, represented by leaders who have demonstrated the kind of leadership that we require. And judging from the experience that I have in this party, this, the provincial structures has only been the structures 
that we are able to provide leadership uh, since the beginning of, 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 of this party. For now, Akhan has appointed National Chairman Mike Chisonga as acting president until the party convenes its elective Congress next year. But whether Akhan survives or not remains to be seen. But all eyes will be focused on whether Mampele Rampele, a decorated struggle icon, medical doctor, academic, and world leader will be able to piece her shattered political image together. I am Sichabagangosi in Johannesburg. And Musa up next with the headlines. Good morning, Somali. President Hassan Sheikh Mahmoud appoints a new security minister following a deadly attack against the presidential palace. Dutch troops join in join a United Nations peacekeeping mission in Mali to meet a growing security threat from the region to the Netherlands and strict new South African immigration laws spark confusion and panic among foreign residents. Those are the stories making headlines. Thank you, Anne. A new, a new initiative that focuses on developing and delivering HIV medicines to children in developing countries has been launched. Dubbed the Pediatric HIV Treatment Initiative, the idea is the brainchild of the Medicines Patent Pool MPP, a Geneva-based organization created to increase access to quality, appropriate and affordable drugs for people living with HIV in developing countries. To find out more on this initiative, Elizabeth Mapari spoke to Greg Perry, Executive Director of MPP. The initiative, which we call the Pediatric HIV Treatment Initiative, is launched by ourselves together with UNITAID and the Drugs for Neglected Diseases. We're all based here in Geneva. The initiative seeks to encourage quicker development and delivery of appropriate formulations for children. That's the principal objective that we have, yeah? Once these products have been developed through the initiative, we will work with organizations to ensure the appropriate delivery, both international organizations and local organizations as well. Tell us, Mr. Perry, how much of a public health problem is the lack of antiretroviral drugs specifically formulated for children, particularly in areas such as sub-Saharan Africa and other developing regions? As you probably know, over 90% of children living with HIV are in sub-Saharan Africa. You know, there are two problems around this. Firstly, there's only about 25% of children with HIV are actually receiving treatment. The current treatments that we have are in appropriate for the children because they will be products which are hard to swallow, they will have a high alcohol content, they will be impalatable because of the taste, yeah? So we have the fact that large numbers of children are not receiving treatment and those which are have pediatric treatments but the formulations that have been developed are not appropriate for their needs. We're seeking to address those two specific problems. In fact, children you know, have been left behind 
While there's been some significant movement in dealing with treatment of adults, and there's still some way to go there as well, obviously, the number of children that has been treated is well below the comparable treatment levels of adults. So the initiative, which was basically born out of discussions that we held at the International AIDS Conference last year in Kuala Lumpur, has as an aim then to fill those treatment gaps. What goes into getting the drugs designed and developed? Take us through the process in a nutshell. Let's start right from the beginning. The first thing we have to do is we have to ensure that the intellectual property around the various products which will make a fixed dose combination are shared. There's a high chance that the patents, principally the patents or the technology, are actually owned by different companies. What we need to do is get those companies together to work with us say they will share all that knowledge and all that intellectual property. So as the road is open towards the development. So then I come to that second phase. We have the development phase. What is needed then is for companies in conjunction with specialist development organizations, such as, for example, the DNDI, who's one of our partners, together with appropriate funding for such development work, as is done currently by UNIDAID, they fund this type of development work, work together in order to actually develop the formulations. Now, these formulations are not always straightforward to develop. You're bringing together, you know, two to three or four different drugs together, yeah? All of this development work is critically needed to come out with the right product. Once you've got the product, you then go into the third phase, which is basically the distribution and purchase phase. We've got to ensure that the products are registered by the authorities in sub-Saharan Africa. And one of the things we want to do is we want to make sure there is a truly accelerated procedure. So once these products have been accepted by the World Health Organization pre-qualification or FDA, there is no delay in their registration. We then have to ensure that they're properly distributed through the appropriate treatment programs. Here is a clear role for communities of people living with HIV and also for treatment providers such as doctors. Now, you mentioned some of the organizations that you're working with. Have you set yourself some time frames as to how long you plan to take to ensure that you reach these children who need the drugs most? The time frames are difficult to give simply because each formulation can be different and it can depend on a number of things like how long it will take to register the products. But we set up the initiative in a functional form in autumn. We will be setting up the working groups that will work on each individual fixed dose combination, the ones recommended by the WHO. So that is the starting process. From that point until the point they actually get out there, we're looking at an absolute minimum, I'm afraid, of 18 months, and that will clearly depend on the development work, to something up to about three years. Finally there, what in your view will be required for this initiative to be a success? The first requirement, of course, is to have the companies involved and committed. The great news is that the Medicines Patent Board has already signed agreements with Vive Healthcare, Gilead Sciences, and Bristol Myers Squibb. So we've cleared the way there, and we're now in negotiations with AbbVie and with Merck Sharp and Boom to do the same thing. The second thing that clearly needs to be done is we do need financing. We need financing for the development of the products, 
and we will need finance purchase commitments from the global community. And the third thing that we will need is we will need commitment from government. We will need commitment from the governments of sub-Saharan Africa to this initiative, and their role will be very critical in the quick registration of the product and clearly with the treatment programs. And, of course, we will be working with the governments to do that as well. You know, it is a collective thing that needs to be done. Everybody that I've talked to is very committed to this. That was Greg Perry, Executive Director of the Geneva-based organization, the Medicines Patent Pool, talking to Channel Africa's Elizabeth Mapari. I would like to encourage everyone to do something worthy for someone else on Mandela Day. We have all equally been awed by his dedication to others. He inspires people across the world and across the generations. You're an example to us all of perseverance, forgiveness, strength, wisdom and grace. Mandela Day reminds us that we all have a little bit of Mandela in ourselves. I will also be giving my 67 minutes. I would like to express my admiration about the great man, Nelson Mandela. Please, 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 on the 18th of July, let's stand together. Give 67 minutes of your time to do what you can. Take action. Inspire change. The introduction of male medical circumcision in hot spot areas in South Africa's Eastern Cape province will be at the center of discussions at a circumcision summit which will be held in September. This has emerged at a media conference held by the Eastern Cape government in partnership with the Provincial House of Traditional Leaders in Bisho. Premier of the province, Pumulo Masuale, says the province is saddened by the loss of 24 young boys and the one 132 who have been hospitalized. Yanga Funani reports. Drastic intervention is being considered by the authorities in the Eastern Cape to keep the high death rate among the initiates in the province. Since the start of the winter circumcision season, 24 young men have died and nearly 200 rescued from hotspot areas in the OR Tambo and Alfred Zot district of the Eastern Cape. Masole says the government will not watch while youngsters are dying. If it needs be, male medical circumcision should be practiced. On the issue of um, medical male circumcision, I think it should be that uh, it is stated up front that for those who can't, there is a way. And it is available to save lives. Where we don't have experienced traditional nurses, it is something very serious for those communities to consider and and government cannot continue folding arms when it could institute means to save lives deputy chairperson of the eastern cape house of traditional leaders prince pence namasha says those who are failing when it comes to the practice of traditional circumcision alternative methods should be used in instances where there are challenges we are attending a summit in september male medical circumcision certainly it will be one of the options to be explored at the summit eastern cape residents are against the idea of introduction of medical male circumcision uh, i am totally against with what is being said to be introduced uh, at the province in Lende, male medical circumcision and i do not think that it would assist us in any way yeah i'm totally against the view 
There's nothing wrong about the Kosa tradition, but it's the implementation of it. Spokesperson of the Human Rights Commission, Isaac Mangena, has condemned the practice of forcing youngsters to be circumcised using the traditional male circumcision. As the Human Rights Commission, we respect the observance of any culture, but then we cannot accept and tolerate a culture that forces young children into, 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 into the mountain. Uh, where it also leads to death of the children and the youth. Uh, of all the guarantees enshrined in our constitution, the right to life is the most fundamental and also the right to choose whether the, the child or the family of the child wants the child to, to go to the initiation school or not. Maswale also says they are looking to centralize all traditional initiation schools in areas most affected by death of initiates. He says these will be taken care by trained traditional nurses in order to curb deaths of initiates. Amyanga Funani in the Eastern Cape. The case against the owner of an illegal initiation school in South Africa in which a six-year-old boy died has been struck off the roll by the Kabukwena Kabukweni Magistrate's Court in Bumalanga province. The owner was arrested for opening an illegal initiation school and violating the Children Protection Act. Vusi Twala reports. The police accompanied by the provincial Ingoma Forum raided the illegal initiation school at Manyevini outside White River yesterday. Twenty initiates found in the school were rescued and relocated to another nearby school. Five initiates have died in Pumalanga since the beginning of the initiation season. So far, the highest number of deaths, 24, has been recorded in the Eastern Cape. Limpopo and the Western Cape have each reported one death. The chairperson of the Pumalanga Ingoma Forum, Musa Chukwana, has welcomed the court's decision. We respect the decision of the court as we are in a South Africa binding law. Uh, however, it does not assist us as Ingoma Forum. Hence, the matter has been referred to the national task team at the national level, which is led by Iko Sumashang to assist and further looking into the matter. The Ingoma Forum says they will continue investigating illegal initiation schools in the province as they believe those schools are responsible for the death of initiates. Last year, about 30 initiates died in Pumalanga and Limpopo. Tukwana says the 20 initiates rescued from the illegal school at Manyeveni have been transferred to a nearby initiation school. Yesterday, when this owner of Ingoma was arrested, these initiates were taken to the illegal school, uh, which is nearby to the one that has been uh, charted down. Hence now, as Ingoma Forum, with our medical team, will continue monitoring them and assess them and, and, and make sure with their health status is guaranteed. The National Prosecuting Authority is yet to prosecute 24 people who were allegedly involved in the death of initiates last year, Amvusi Twala in Bombela. Tabisa Lehoku up next with our economics update. Africa is losing billions of dollars in trade due to a lack of infrastructure and regional integration. This is according to the World Bank. 
In response to this finding, South Africa's Minister of Transport, Dipur Peters, has stressed the need for Africa's speedy regional transport integration and infrastructure development. She was speaking to transport delegates from South Africa and beyond. Peters emphasized that throughout Southern Africa, the network of roads, railways, ports and airways meets the demand of most users, but more still needs to be done. Egypt has raised the sales tax on cigarettes by up to 120% and doubled the tax on alcohol. This is part of a series of measures to curb the budget deficit and to reform the economy. The decisions were taken by President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi and published in the state's official gazette. This a day after a subsidy cut that increased the price of fuel and natural gas by over 70% anger in drivers. Egypt is trying to reduce its deficit to 10% of gross domestic product in the next fiscal year from an expected shortfall of 12% in 2013-2014. Libya's sovereign wealth fund, the Libyan Investment Authority, has appointed a new chief after his predecessor stepped down over a controversial political law. Former oil minister Abdullahrem Benyeza has taken over as acting head of the fund. His predecessor, Abdullahmit Breish, quit after an investigation under a law which bans the people from taking public office if they had a function in the regime of the late leader Muammar Gaddafi, who was deposed and killed by rebels after an eight-month uprising in 2011. The law has been welcomed by some Libyans who suffered under Gaddafi, but is seen as a headache for the government because the country has few experienced technocrats after four decades of one-man rule. South African President Jacob Zuma is expected to launch a $561,000 automotive project in Port Elizabeth in the country's Eastern Cape province today. The project is led by the First Automotive Works, a Chinese company which manufactures both commercial and light passenger vehicles. Over 600 job opportunities are expected to be generated by this initiative. Zuma is expected to be accompanied by Trade and Industry Minister Rob Davies. Africa's largest operating wind farm has entered a service with the 60-turbine Jeffreys Bay facility in South Africa's Eastern Cape province being officially inaugurated. It will generate up to 460,000 megawatt hours per year. The wind farm is part of government's independent power producers program and is spread over 3,700 hectares. General Manager Mark Pickering. This farm was built in a period of 18 months. We completed it on time, on schedule, and on budget. And best of all, we completed it with a perfect health and safety record, without a single lost time incident during the construction process, which involved over 700 people working on site. The project's been operating now for several months. It's feeding clean, green energy into the grid, helping power the country in in these cold days. And it's going to be doing that for another 20 years. The U.S. dollar trades at 10.68 South African rands, 8.71 Botswana Pula, 6.13 Zambian Kwasha, 0.58 British pound, 0.73 to the euro, gold 1.328 dollars, platinum 1.504 dollars an ounce, brand crude oil, 1.0818 cents a barrel. Economic update.
Thank you, Tabi. So now, Tami Kluza, your head on the block. I'm Who are you, you going with? Uh, Nigeria, you've, you, we've, we've got a very serious issue that is pending in Nigeria with FIFA. Mm-hmm. Remember last week, the sports ministry sacked the entire Nigerian Football Federation. Mm-hmm. Now, they've been given until next week, Tuesday, to reinstate all those executive members that were sacked. But now, in the turn of events yesterday, mm-hmm. FIFA issued a statement saying that they are suspending Nigeria from all football-related activities. Okay. Your head on the block. Argentina? And uh, Germany. Germany. Hey, that's the biggest one. But I think I'm going with Germans. They are, the, they are a rampant machine that I've I'm seen I'm going so with far. Argentina. So with we'll Argentina. have a chat about it. Next week on Next Monday. Next week, Monday. Good. Great. Give us an update. Thanks for joining us once again from the sports desk. Leon Messi's Argentina beat the Netherlands in a penalty shootout to reach the Soccer World Cup final for the first time since 1990. Argentine goalkeeper Sergio Romero saved two penalties in a shootout with the Netherlands to take his country through to the World Cup final against Germany. It was the second time that Holland, who lost in 2010 final to Spain, were beaten on penalties in a World Cup semi-final. They fell to Brazil in 1998. And it was only Argentina's second win over the Netherlands in nine attempts, their first since the 1978 World Cup final. And it enabled Messi and his teammates to pay appropriate homage to Argentine great Alfredo Di Stefano, who died on Monday, aged 88. Nigeria has been suspended from all international football by Wales football governing body FIFA amid allegations of government interference in its football federation. The ban means no Nigerian team, including club sides, can play internationally. FIFA had given Nigerian government until Tuesday to reinstate the said Nigerian Football Federation, the NFF Executive Committee. The Nigerian Football Federation was dissolved last week and replaced by a sole administrator. Nigerian Football Federation analyst Anderson Ogugwa gives us more details. Regarding the FIFA suspension of Nigeria national football activities, it did not come as a surprise because FIFA had earlier warned the Nigerian government and of course the sports ministry. Now, if you recall, there is an election that's coming up on the 26th of August sometime very soon and um, everything has been uh, boiling towards that election. The most immediate effect is that Nigeria will not be entitled to participate in the upcoming Under-20 Women's World Cup, which starts on the 5th of next month, should the suspension not be lifted by next Tuesday. Now, with this suspension of Nigeria, um, if you remember clearly, the female team have already departed for Canada for the Women's Under-20 World Cup. Now, if Nigeria do not rescind that decision, that team would have to return back to Nigeria. And uh, I don't know what will happen, the fate of Nigerian football. I don't know what's going to happen. During the period of suspension, the Nigerian Football Federation may not be represented in any regional, continental or international competitions, including at at club level or in friendly matches. 
Now, back home in cricket, Sri Lanka have defeated South Africa by 87 runs in the second one-day international yesterday to level the three-match series at one all. Natalie Chamanos reports. Sri Lanka came back strongly in the second one-day international against South Africa to beat the visitors by 87 runs and level out the series. In the end, Telekaratni Dilshan was named man of the match for his fantastic performance with both bat and ball. Dilshan made 86 with a bat of 90 deliveries with nine fours and helped Sri Lanka to 267 all out. With the ball, he picked up three for 40 in 10 overs and helped bowl South Africa out for 180. Hashimamla was South Africa's shining light with the bat, making 101, his second century in a row in the 14th of his career. He faced just 102 balls and hit 11 fours, but didn't get nearly enough support from the rest of the batsmen. In Sri Lanka's 267 all-out for South Africa, Ryan McLaren picked up four for 48 in 10 overs, while Imran Tahir took two for 41 in 10, including a maiden over. And finally, in golf, probably the best field ever for the Aberdeen Asset Management Scottish Open has gathered for the week at the Royal Aberdeen. Phil Mickelson defends the title which provided the foundation for his Open Championship success last year. Nick Dye reports. In fact, the last four Open champions line up by the North Sea, Ernie Els, Darren Clark, Louis Eustace and all joining Mickelson in an event that now has a reputation for providing a winner the following week. And the move from Castle Stewart to Aberdeen has tempted Rory McIlroy, Justin Rose and Ian Poulter, among others, knowing it's likely to be terrific grounding. Indeed, some reckon the test this week could be more formidable than that to come at Hoylake, with strong winds and plenty of rain forecast. There's a feeling the course will play differently almost every day. Stephen Gallagher looks the best in form of the home players, while Richie Ramsey plays his home course if he recovers from injury problems. That's the end of our sport. Stay tuned to Channel Africa and back to Lulu Gabu. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorba. Africa, Amuka na Unai. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Pumuto Ramagaza, technical producer Mario Edwards and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info@channelafrica.co.za, tweet us and follow us on Twitter at Rise Shine Africa or send us an SMS to plus 2782-332-5905. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa is Maywe with Mama Man.
Thank you.